0: Our scripture comes this morning from 1 John chapter 4, which is probably no surprise to most of you. 1 John chapter 4, we're reading verses 7 through 17 this morning. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. And may the Lord add his blessing to to his holy and inerrant word. Let's look together to the Lord in prayer. Father, we seek now your blessing as we look at this passage together. Lord, we pray that you would grant that we might understand the nature of the love that you have for us and the compelling character of that nature that moves us and encourages us and calls us to love one another. Bless us, Lord, in the perusal of these things. May it be profitable to our heart and our life. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start off with a quote this morning from John Witherspoon. As love to God is the first commandment, So love to man is the second commandment of the moral law. We have our Lord's own authority for saying it is like unto the first. That is, the second commandment is like unto the first. And that love, which works no ill to his neighbors, is the fulfilling of the law. Everyone is ready to acknowledge that love to man is an important branch of practical religion. But many do not sufficiently attend to its inseparable connection with the love of God, and in particular with a sense of redeeming love, or the love of God in Christ. If we take Dr. Witherspoon's statement here, and we take it apart. It breaks down to this. The first commandment demands and calls for a dedicated love to God. The creator, the sustainer, and the savior of men. So, The first commandment requires that. A dedicated love to the one true and living God. The second commandment, Witherspoon says, is like the first. And he says that on with the authority that's given by christ who is the one who says that the second commandment is like the first and it requires a dedicated love to others based on one's love for god now if we ask well what does likeness mean we understand that's what jesus said and and witherspoon repeats it here but what is this idea of likeness what does that mean The answer is this, a resemblance to other things of the same kind. That's what likeness means, a resemblance to other things of the same kind. So you have this first commandment. The second commandment resembles it in its spirit, in its obligation, in its fulfillment. And it's used by Paul, this idea of likeness, when he's speaking of Christ in Philippians chapter 2 verse 7 a verse that's familiar to many of you but he that is Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and there that same word is being used there that he uses to describe the relationship between the two commandments the point is beloved that despite the fact that many do not take it seriously there is a strong resemblance between these two commandments. And the temptation is to look at the first commandment and say, well, that's the really serious one. Because we are to love God with all our heart and all our mind and all our strength. That's, that's the really serious one. And then there's this other one that is not quite as serious. And Christ is making it clear when he says that they're like, that it's just as serious But the temptation is to not take it as seriously. But there's a strong resemblance, Jesus says, between the two commandments. In addition, even among those who take it seriously, many don't appreciate the fact that this commandment to love others is so closely connected to one's love to God and the impact of redeeming grace on his or her life that you really can't keep the first commandment without keeping the second one, just because of the relationship between the two. Now, why quote Witherspoon here to begin with today? Well, some of you will have already guessed that. Um, I've shared the statement with you for two obvious reasons. First of all, because of its thought-provoking soundness, and that's the obvious reason. And secondly, obviously, Witherspoon was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence as a member of the Second Continental Congress from New Jersey. Before we look at uh, the passage itself from 1 John 4 that gave rise to his remarks, I just want to quickly mention two other things about this Presbyterian minister and professor on this Fourth of July weekend. In his philosophy of freedom... Witherspoon was one of the most consistent of the founding fathers. It was use of the term campus to describe the college grounds that coined the word and brought it into our common use in English. We call college campuses campuses because of Witherspoon, his influence. When we say that he was um, one of the consistent, most consistent of the founding fathers, what is intended by that is his spiritual and doctrinal understanding of God's word was a part of his whole concept and idea of freedom, and his whole concept of an idea of freedom influenced everything which he taught, and which was taught under him at Princeton or the College of New Jersey at the time. Witherspoon never led an army into battle, nor did he run for high national office after the War for Independence. But his influence was such that in his role as president of the College of New Jersey, now Princeton, he helped to educate a generation of leaders for the new nation. His students included the first acting president of the colonies, John Blair, President James Madison, a vice president, Aaron Burr, Henry and Charles Lee of Virginia, Ten of his former students became cabinet officers. Six were members of the Continental Congress. Thirty-nine became congressmen. Three became Supreme Court justices. And 21 sat in the Senate. His His graduates included 12 governors. And when the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America, the Presbyterian Church first forming in America, met in 1789, 52 of the 188 delegates had studied under John Witherspoon. The limited government philosophy of most of these men was due in large measure to Witherspoon's influence. Now, as many of you know, the Declaration was passed today, on July 2nd in 1776 in Congress, and then signed by the majority of the delegates on July 4th. On that day, Witherspoon addressed the Congress with these now famous words. There is a tide in the affairs of men, a nick of time. We perceive it now before us. To hesitate is to consent to our own slavery. That noble instrument upon your table, which ensures immortality to its author, should be subscribed this very morning by every pen in this house, He that will not respond to its accents and strain every nerve to carry into effect its provisions is unworthy of the name of free man. For my own part of property I have some of reputation more. That reputation is staked, that property is pledged on the issue of this contest. And although these gray hairs must soon descend into the sepulcher, I would infinitely rather that they descend thither by the hand of the executioner, Than desert at this crisis the sacred cause of my country. So that gives you the idea of the spirit of this man. And that spirit is being driven by something that's underlying it. And what is underlying it is his concept of love to God and therefore to others. He's thinking about the blessings and the privileges of freedom. And he's wanting to see them extended to future generations out of a spirit of love to God. It's a part of who he is as a man of God. So we turn now to 1 John chapter 4. And we read in verse 11 this. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we'll stop reading there to start with. There are three things that we want to be concerned with this morning. The first is this. Men and women see the love of God in those who believe. Men and women see the love of God in those who believe. And that's being said by John in verses 11 and 12. If you look at verse 11, you'll see that John says to you and me, as those who are loved by God, that if God does indeed so love us, We ought to love one another. Now practically speaking, as you think about those words, look at the fellow believer in front of you or beside you in the pew. And you don't have to physically do that, but you can look out the corner of your eye if you want. You can see the one in front of you very easily. Your God, by his grace, fixed his divine love on that one that's sitting there near you before the foundations of the world. He did it out of his own free grace and then demonstrated that love for him or for her by sending his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to suffer and to bleed And to die for that one. So what I'm saying is look at each other in those terms this morning. You're surrounded by people who have made the same profession of faith that you've made. Last week you came together and you drank the cup and you ate the bread together. And now as you look at each other and think about each other in this room as fellow believers... This is what we're talking about. Someone loved before the foundations of the world by Jesus Christ. Someone for whom God sent his only son to die, to suffer, to bleed for, to to give that person new life in Christ Jesus. So the question is, how do any of us, loved in that same way, dare not love our brother or sister in Christ? How do we dare not love anyone who has that same privilege and blessing by the grace of God? How do we dare do anything less than love them, knowing of Christ's love for them? How do we ever say, I don't like the way they look, or I don't like the way they act, or I don't like the way they talk, or I don't like this, or I don't like that. How do we ever say that? Knowing that they are in that place in the eyes of God. But it runs deeper still, doesn't it? Anyone so freely and undeservedly loved by God speaking of myself how should i possibly how can i possibly not freely and undeservedly love others especially those with whom i have a share in that gracious and gratuitous love of god how do i dare not do that considering my own position i have been loved by god Not because of anything in me, but graciously and gratuitously and freely by God. And what legitimate excuse can I use for withholding my love from others who have seen that love at the hand of God? So this is the way it's supposed to be. Now, that brings us, that's the way we're to view one another. So now how are we to view God? God. Well, we know no one has seen God. In fact, John says that here, right? Nobody has seen God. None of us have ever seen him. And verse 12 adds that. And the little children's catechism that many covenant children have learned from their earliest years and cut their youthful theological teeth on, says things about God that probably many of you can repeat here. What is God? God is a spirit. That was kind of ragged, but you got the idea. God is a spirit and has not a body like man. Where is God? Can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. Very good. <laughs> some good some good uh, catechism students there. So we can't see him because he's a spirit and doesn't have a body like men and so or women, and so we can't see him. But he is everywhere, and though we can't see him, he always sees us. Now, John is accentuating that point here. And he sort of is bringing out the same idea. Can we see God? No, no man's ever seen God. But then he adds this, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And what he's saying here is that though no one has ever seen God, they will see his love manifested in that love, which we show to one another and toward others. This is, says John The accomplishing or the accomplishment of the proposed end for which God has shed his love on you. Why has he loved you this way so graciously and gratuitously? Why has he loved you so freely? So that you would bear witness to his love by loving one another and others. And in that, men would see the love of God. By you loving them. That's how it's seen. Has any man ever seen God? No. So how do we know he loves? By your testimony of love. For each other and for others. And that's what communicates that message of love. He loved you. So that you would show his love to others by your love for them. And he shows his love by you to them, so that they will show his love to others. And so by his love shown by them to them, others will see the love of God. And then it will be seen in them, and they will show it to others, and others will show it to others, and others to others, and so on. And that's how the love of God is manifested. By our faith in Christ by our trust in Christ, by the love that is now born in us through Christ's love for us. Now, just to summarize that, the problem is that we don't have all the time in the world, nor the attention span, to go back and describe in detail what love is and what it's not. But in summary, we can say this. This love that we show to each other and to others is the love that seeks the greatest welfare of the one being loved. That's the nature of the love that Christ has shown to us. It sought the greatest welfare for us. And in our love towards others, that's our aim, to show them The love that will will bring them, will give them the, the greatest welfare. And of course that is by meeting the eternal need that they have. A need that can only be secured in and by faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't ignore or minimize sin... But it calls for confession and repentance and, above all, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who showed his love to us by sending his Son to die for us. There's so much more that could be said here, but I can't. I can only pray that the Holy Spirit will make all of that obvious in things that you know from your heart, um, things that are plain to our hearts and our minds, from the word of God and what it means to love but you exercise that love which is described for example like in passages uh, like 1 Corinthians 13 and sadly we, we make the mistake of taking passages like that and saying well this is how husbands and wives are supposed to love each other yes and that's also how you are supposed to love each other And how you are supposed to love those who are outside as well of the body of Christ. That 1 Corinthians 13 passage is not just a prescription for how husbands and wives should love one another. It is, but it's not that alone. It's a description of what love is like. So if you have questions about, well, how do I show love to others? Go to 1 Corinthians 13 and read it. And it will show you how to do it. Tell you how to do it. It's right there. And it's not just in relationship to the one who's dearest to you in this world, but to others as well. If children want to know how to love their parents, go there. You'll find a prescription for it. Parents want to know how to love their children, go there. You'll find a prescription for it. Along with other passages in the word of God. We are to seek the the greatest welfare for one another with our love. And That does it, that means loving with an express purpose of doing the greatest good, making the saving grace of Jesus Christ known through our own spirit of love. Like Paul, our love should be exercised with decision. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, Paul says this, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because he loved the Corinthians. That's why. He loved them, and so he decided that he to know nothing else among them except Christ and Him crucified. Now just reflect, beloved, on on this profound fact. When your brethren and others see his love manifested in that love which you show towards them and towards others. This is, says John, the accomplishment of the purpose and design and end for which the love of God was shed on you. You were loved to love in his name. You were loved to love in his name. By this all people will know that you are my disciples because you can recite the Westminster Confession of Faith by heart. Did Jesus say that? No. What did he say? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That will demonstrate that you are my disciples. Now secondly, true faith produces true love. And that's verses 13 through 16. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. You can know, John says, that you abide in him because he has given you his spirit, and this spirit convinces you, and you testify the fact that God has sent his only son to be the savior of the world, and whoever believes and confesses this concerning the son of God does so by the Spirit, thus showing or demonstrating that God abides in him or her. And anyone who understands that and believes that shows or demonstrates that faith by loving his or her brethren and others. I demonstrate my faith in that, in that testimony of Christ's death for me by my love. For my brethren and for others. That's what bears witness to it. Love for the brethren is the first thing that's involved here. In our mutual love for one another, we bear testimony to the world of our love for Christ in us. There ought to be compelling evidence of the spirit of God in us in the way we interact with one another. And that begins in the home and spreads out into the whole fellowship. Of believers this overwhelming spirit of love it's so important to couples as they build in their relationship with one another my love the fullness of my love is demonstrated in my love for my mate in accord with God's word and I love them with the most compelling thing in mind. Their greatest welfare. And their greatest welfare is the peace and comfort and consolation of their soul in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that, that drives the spirit of love. Now it manifests itself in all kinds of particular ways. But that's what's behind all of those particular ways. I guard my speech and my relationship with my spouse. Why? Because I love them. I don't just love them romantically. I love them based on this love that's been shown to me. And so it drives the spirit of the way I communicate, even with that one who is my spouse. The same thing in the context of children and their parents and parents and their children. And certainly in the relationship that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. There ought to be a compelling evidence of the Spirit of God in us in the way we interact. It shouldn't be like those in the world interacting with their friends and acquaintances. It should be richer, it should be deeper, it should be fuller. And if one says, well, how do I do that? How do I love like that? The answer is this, beloved, by the Spirit of God. By the Spirit of God in you. It's not meant to be a natural thing, but a supernatural thing that is born of the Spirit, a love that is gained by prayer. Leighton puts it this way, Christian brethren are united by a threefold court. Two of them are common to other men, but the third is the strongest, and theirs peculiarly. He goes on to explain that we're all descended bodily from the same man and woman, (coughs) and all men and women have their souls from the same God. But their new life, he adds, is derived from the same God-man, Jesus Christ. One body joined together under one head, our common Savior and King. His love is the source of our fraternity. His love is the source of our fraternity. When Paul sought the prayers of his fellow Christians in Rome, he said this in Romans 15.30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. He was asking them to, on the basis of the love of the Spirit, to pray for him. And that's the basis on which we pray for each other. Love born of the Holy Spirit. And then there are those outside, outside of this fraternity. And our situation is such, beloved, that nothing but self-sacrificial love becomes us. And that brings us back to the quote from Dr. Witherspoon that we referenced earlier. Remember he said this everyone is ready to acknowledge that love to man is an important branch of practical religion. But many do not sufficiently attend to its inseparable connection with the love of God, and in particular, with a sense of redeeming love or the love of God in Christ. I would submit to you, beloved, that many, if not all, the objections to and rejections of the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior are ploys to keep the blinded hearts of men and women from facing the fact that the work of redemption is all about the love of God that it's all about the love of God that's why so often the lost try to deflect the testimony of that love by seeking to make it about something else You want to show them and tell them about the love of God and sending his only son to be the propitiation for their sins. That's what you want to tell them about. That's what you want to put before them. And they respond by wanting to talk about how the Bible is a book full of myths. You want to talk about the love of God and his love for them. And they want to debate the Bible. They want to talk about how they were treated badly by a Christian once. And therefore, they shouldn't have to hear anything about the love of God. Because a Christian treated me poorly. Or a church. Or they want to talk about the mean, punitive God of the Old Testament that they really don't know anything about. Or about the hypocrisy of Christians. So here you are saying, I want to tell you about a love that's like no other love you've ever known or you've ever heard of. And their response is, well, what about the hypocritical Christian? And that is a ploy either of the devil or of their own hearts to keep them from confronting the compelling character of this witness and testimony of God's overwhelming love in sending his son to die for sinners. And in their minds, anything is worthy to be considered except the true love by which he sent his son to be the propitiation for their sins. When you and I force the issue by our love in his name, there's a desperate need to obscure and confuse the matter, both by Satan and the deceitful heart, lest that Christ-like and gracious love become compelling. And that's why you and I have to be faithful to continue to bring love to bear. Let's not talk about this debate. Let's talk about the love of Christ. Let's talk about the love of God and how it was manifested in his sending his only son. Let's talk about the love that God has for you. You're broken hearted. You're sad. You're sorry. You're feeling sorrow. The love of God is the answer to that. And keep going back to that showing love by demonstrating the love of God. Paraphrasing Paul, none of those things that are put forward should move us. Jude says in his epistle in verse 21, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Reach out in love. Speak to them in love. Bring forward the testimony of the love of God. Bring them to deal with that. Lastly, true love gives eternal confidence. In verse 17, John writes this. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. Now, in short, beloved, if the promise of God's love is found to be fulfilled in you, then you, by the witness of that love in you, can have a sense of liberty and freedom concerning the day of judgment. Why? Because if you have this kind of love in you, you know that God loves you this way and you have the spirit of love towards others, then you know that you're loved by him. And so you don't have anything to fear in that day of judgment. You already know you're loved by him because he has shown you his love and he is using you to show his love to others. You're not waiting for a verdict. You know that you've already been vindicated in Christ. And so you have confidence concerning that day, John says. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says this in this familiar section beginning with verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is uh, to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. <coughs> more than that, who was raised? He was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, he says in verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And therefore, we can have peace concerning the day of judgment. Because we're already loved. And we know it. Because we know the love that God has for us in Christ And because of the spirit that he's given us of love towards one another and others. We've not been given a spirit of fear, but of love. Calvin says, John says that the faithful do not fear when mention is made to them of the last judgment. But that on the contrary, they go to God's tribunal confidently and cheerfully. Because they are assured of his paternal love. What a great... Statement. What a wonderful peace we have. Everyone in whom this love is perfected has made so much proficiency in faith, says Calvin, as he is well prepared in his mind to look forward to the day of judgment. And that brings us to the last phrase, which in this text is kind of curious, but it goes back to where John started No man has seen God but his love is apparent and it's demonstrated in the lives of his people who love one another and love others as he loves his own and others. And consequently, as he is, so also are we in the world. What that means is God loved you and he showed that love to you. And he brought you to himself. And he loved you as strangers to him, even as enemies to him. And he showed you such great love and brought you to himself. That's how he is in the world, rescuing the perishing. That's who he is in the world, saving souls out of love. And here you are as people, and this is how you are in the world. Rescue the, rescuing the perishing reaching out to lost souls showing them his love as he is in the world so are you in the world because he abides in you what he is you are in that sense not divinely of course it shouldn't need to be said but be sure beloved that there's no doubt all of this love toward the brethren and others even our persecutors and our enemies begins with what Witherspoon described as the supreme love for God he says it's not a supreme love of a certain nature or person called God but one who's nothing more than just an idea or a name you can't truly love what you don't know No, you can't love an uncertain and unknown idea with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. We love the one who made us. That is, the one who formed our inward parts and knitted us together in our mother's womb. That's the one we love. The one who breathed life into us. We love the one who supplies all our needs. The shepherd who causes us not to want but it makes us to lie down in green pastures and beside still waters. We love the one who loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Not an idea, not just a name, not just the concept of God, but this one who literally made us, this one who breathed into us the breath of life. The one who daily attends to our needs and carries us through life. This one who loved us so much that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the one we love. And it's a real love. The one who loved us that through him we might live. And it's this real, close, and personal love. That translates into a true and earnest love for one another and others. My time is gone, but in your notes, you have some concluding observation about the nature of love. It leads, it serves, it's smart, that is, it's intelligent the way it operates, it inspires, it is earnest, it covers and doesn't dwell on sin. That's just a brief outline of the character of this love, and I encourage you to look at those passages and think about it in the context of what we've said today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is hard for us to imagine sometimes that uh, your love is indeed perfected in us and that you have employed us by grace to be the demonstrators of your love in the world. But Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength and the grace and the understanding of this truth to apply it daily in our lives. We are the evidence of God's love for our spouse. We are the evidence of God's love for others, for our children, for our parents, for one another, for the stranger. Lord, empower us towards that end for your glory, for the testimony of Jesus Christ, for the blessing of the kingdom, and Lord, for a witness and testimony to the world that God is love. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for saving us. And if anyone here has been putting off dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ because of one argument or another, May they see, Lord, rather the love that is manifested in what God did and come to grips, Lord, with what you have done in Jesus Christ for sinners. And, Lord, bow before that love, surrender before it, and come in faith, confessing sin and believing that Christ is indeed the payment, the propitiation for sin in his death on the cross. And let them find peace and joy and, above all, love. We ask it in Jesus' name.